All right, if you have your Bible, join me in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 this evening. We are going to be picking up where we left off last week in verse 19. So we will start there, read down through the rest of the chapter. Verse 19, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren... We are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Paul, in trying to help the church here at Galatia understand all that is going on, he goes all the way back and he references an illustration from the beginning of the entire nation of Israel. And he gives the illustration of the two children that are brought forth and that are born through Abraham. So you've got Isaac and you've got Ishmael. You've got Isaac, who was born there of faith, of promise, through Sarah. And then you've got Ishmael, who was by Hagar, the bondwoman. And so there's these two sides. Now, we look at it, and we look at it from a point of view of the value of human life. Both of these babies had the value of human life. There's no doubt about that. But the picture goes back, and the picture is what Paul's referring to here. And he's trying to help you and I understand as we go through it, though, let us look at how Paul is viewing, first of all, those that are there at Galatia, those that he has labored to see come to know Christ. And as he deals with them, one there in our outline, what expression does Paul re use excuse me, to refer to the converts at Galatia? What is that expression? Little children. My little children. So he comes to him and he says, my little children. Look, this, this is the way that he's referred to him. This is the love that he has. This is the heartbeat. This is the desire that he has. This is the way that he sees them. Here are my little children, of whom I travail and birth again until Christ be formed in you. As we look at this and as we understand it, now obviously this is fresh in my mind uh, because we have just been through this. The idea in the picture of the travailing of birth. Obviously, to any guy, we look at that and go, yeah, it's not a big deal. Because we've never been through it. 
But that travailing, the pain that it takes in birth, I can remember going back, and Moriah was probably the one that stands out the most in my mind of our children. As we went through that process, and the reason that one probably stands out most in my mind is the doctor came in to Kara and said to her, hey, do you want an epidural? And Kara said, no, I'm not feeling anything. Everything's good. I don't need an epidural. So the doctor leaves and goes into a C-section. A couple minutes later, they break her water, and Kara goes, I want an epidural. I want an epidural. Well, there was no one around to give it at this point. So this one was all natural. And so at the end of it, I remember as Mariah was over on one side and they were working on her, that at that moment, my heart was completely concerned with Kara more than it was Mariah because of all that she had just physically gone through. Paul uses that picture. And he says, look, my, my little children, I love you as if you are my own child, but I recognize that there is a travail, there is a labor in seeing someone, one, come to Christ, but two, seeing someone grow in Christ. And so this issue, this problem, this struggle of birth is the picture that Paul chooses to use. He said, I desire to be present with you and to change my voice for I stand in doubt of you. He said, look, I want to speak to you in a, in a different way. I want you to be able to hear my voice change because I care for you. you. You're like I have given birth to you. And through this travail, I need you to do it. I need you to understand this. Why is it important that Paul saw them in this light? That he saw them as little children? And then the next part of that question is what added responsibility does it place on Paul for the spiritual well-being of these Christians? What is this weight that he's got? If he refers to them as little children, how is that different to him just referring to them as people of the church? What's the difference in responsibility there? Feeding. 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 You have the idea of feeding. So there, there's a tremendous level of care that has to take place. When the Lord talks to Peter about the church, as he is getting ready to leave this world, he looks at Peter and repeatedly says to him, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Feed them. Take care of them. There's a responsibility here that recognizes an inability of a child and the responsibility of an adult to meet that need. Too often, we miss out on the responsibility that comes and the love that comes with that aspect of that responsibility. Look, if you will, question two. How should Paul's view of these converts mold the way we view and deal with those that have trusted Christ under our ministry? How crucial does it become for our church to disciple new believers as a result of viewing them the way that Paul did in Galatians? What's the difference here? If you look at them as my little children and the travail of bringing them to Christ, what is the difference that we see in the way that our church should be involved in this? So there's a compelling of responsibility. What else? 
at what age do you as a parent feel good about leaving your kid without supervision? Never. <laughs> you know what? We laugh, but isn't there some truth to that? I mean, honestly, isn't there some truth to that? That you go, grandparents, you're going, look, I can help my child with their kid. Let me just tell you, if they'd listen to me, there's a level at which at every level, we recognize when our children become more responsible. We recognize when our children are able to care for themselves in certain areas. And with each of those milestones, there's some benefit and reward when we have done our job well as parents and they have reached that level. But the truth is, there's always a level of concern for that child. And that's the picture that Paul's trying to paint here. Look, Galatians, I was there. I preached. You came to Christ. You were saved. You walked away from all of these false gods. You walked away from the old law. You walked away from the... And you put your trust in Christ alone. And there was work. And then I am here now continuing to travail because I want to see you go and grow and grow and grow and grow. In reality, it may not be as painful all of the time, but it takes a lot more work to see a child reared to adulthood than it does to give birth. And so at that moment, Paul says, and he uses a picture to help us understand that there is a huge responsibility. And then what then becomes the role of our church, of Harvest Baptist, in this picture? I was talking to Brother Bob today, and I said, one of the things that in our church that I want, and I don't mean just here, but here we have some influence in saying this, but I think throughout Christendom, is we have this mindset that teachers are teachers, and they have a responsibility to disseminate information. But really in Scripture, there's so much more than that to the role of a teacher. The teacher really is more of a trainer, and the teacher then has the responsibility to get the information, but then to help that individual apply that information. Okay? Let me give you an example in a physical sense. If you have someone who is your PE teacher, and they say to you, hey, running will make you healthier. You need to run. Okay? Are those facts true? Most of the time that's true. There can be situations where running may not be good for you, but most of the time that's a true statement. However, do you go out and start running? Some people might. Most say, uh-uh, no, not happening. A trainer says, hey, you know what? Running will help you be healthier. So tomorrow morning, let's meet at the track, and we're going to start. And you get to the track, and they go, okay, let me see your shoes. You can't run in those. We need to get you some shoes. All right, well, all right what else you got going here? Okay, now, now let's go. One of the things that is hard for me, and it's completely silly, but it's true, I hate seeing people jog down the road because, you know, it's not for the same reason you're thinking, Brother Matt's trying to avoid them with his truck, but uh, I'm thinking when people are out running, 
I have tried to learn as much as I possibly could about running because of how much I like to run. And I watch people run and I go, oh, do you know how bad that is on your knees? You are running so wrong. If you would just shorten your step, increase your cadence, stand up straight, quiet the noise. And you're going, what? And, and I'm going, and I just, I can see somebody jogging down the road. And I'm going, oh, that's so wrong. When you want to train someone, you go, okay, no, 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 look, look, look. Don't, don't, st- did you know when you run, your feet are supposed to land under you, not out in front of you. So most people run and they lope like a deer. So they get their feet way out in front. And so they land here and all that impacts on your knee. And I look and I go, no, 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 no. Get your feet underneath you. My wife can tell you this because I did it to her. She tr- started training for a half marathon. She went out, started doing her first long run. She goes, man, my knees are hurting. I go, all right, here's your problem. And so we worked on it. She changed her steps and she ended up, what were you? Like first in your age group and like fourth overall in her first half marathon she ever ran. I hate her. But anyway, <laughs> it, it, it's just when you know how you want to help people do it right. Look, it's easy to look at someone and say, you need to walk with the Lord. Great. I don't know what that means. Well, you need to read your Bible, okay? For Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which, it, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Sorry, I got no idea what that means. Are, are you picking up what I'm putting down here? I mean, look, it's easy to say it, but training says, look, let, let me help explain this to you and then help you understand. All right, in your life now, look, you don't want to talk to somebody like that. You, you don't want to speak to somebody that way. You don't want to get upset about You don't want to invest your time in that. And Paul said, as I travail, I recognize that the work of seeing you grow in Christ is like the work of giving birth. Look at three. What was the desire of the Galatians? There in verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Why would they have this desire? What does it say about their heart towards the Lord? What do you think this indicates about people as a whole when it comes to God? Any thoughts on this? What does it say about people? It's demanding, rigid. It's demanding, it's rigid. Why do we like that? It can give us a sense of accomplishment because we, we checked it off. That's good. Um, it makes us feel like we have a part in it, in our own righteousness. And the law at some level has a comfort because it's done. It's almost like this. You walk into your house, men, and you feel it, though you don't know why it's there, and all of a sudden there are tears. I have four girls now. Pray for me and for Aaron or Andrew. When you know and you're going, but I took out the trash, I mowed the grass. Um, It's not our anniversary. It's not a birthday. And you're going through the list and you're going, but I did all the right things. What's wrong? The checklist makes me feel good because I know. 
the relationship is so much more rewarding. But the relationship requires sitting down and going, what's going on? When it comes to the Lord, it's true that a checklist can make us feel better because we did our duty. We got it done. But the relationship and the fellowship with God helps me to know exactly what He wants for me. And it's nuanced, and it's art, and I like math, and I want science. And yet the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding in our life through Scripture, in circumstances day in and day out. That's what Paul's trying to teach them. Look, don't fall back under this checklist. Move forward in walking with the Lord. Question four. Who is compared to being under the law? Who is compared to being under grace? Who are the two? We talked about it a second ago. Who are the two? Hagar and her son is? Ishmael. So that's which side? Law or grace? Law. Grace is then? Isaac. So we got Ishmael, law, Isaac, grace. Isn't it one of those startling passages in the Old Testament? When Abraham goes and and there's this fighting going on, and Ishmael and Hagar are now mocking Isaac, and there's this problem, and the Lord says to Abraham, just cast her out. But you, no, you don't do that. And yet it's God telling him to. And then God says, look, it was a picture way back then that I want you to understand now. Did the law have a place? Yes. Was there value to the law? Yes. You've got to get rid of the law. You've got to cast it out because there's such a tendency to go back to it. Get rid of it. It's not what you need. The Holy Spirit will lead you and will never lead you against the law. But the Holy Spirit doesn't need the law. So follow the Holy Spirit. As a child, we look at a child and we say, don't play in the road. Don't go in the road. Stay away from the road. As an adult, do you walk in the road? Well, sure you do. Now you've got enough sense to know the problem was not the road. The problem is the car squishing you. I tell Justice all the time, you'll make a terrible pancake, bud. Once we learn and we grow, we understand the spirit of the rule. We don't need the letter of the law anymore. That's the picture here. Look, there was a law that you needed. Now you've got the spirit. Follow the spirit. Look at five. How should the role of being a physical parent model the role of being a spiritual parent? As he goes on, back in verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice thou that bearest, that is barren, that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate, desolate excuse me, many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. 
but we are children. And I want you to understand this, Paul's saying, look, we're free from the old law, but even in that, I still see you as a child that I have responsibility over. So how does the role as a parent then impact our spiritual parenthood role? How does it impact? It's a long-term process of trying to bring them up to full maturity. It's a long-term process. What else is it? It's intentional. What else? Do you ever have to go over the same thing with your kids more than once? Does your spouse ever have to go over the same thing with you more than once? Sure, sure. It's a long-term process, and it's a repeated process. Let me ask you, is it occasionally a hurtful process? It can be. It can be. Is it worth it? Yeah. Now, we look at it and say, if I could make that person do what I can make my child do, but you can only make your child do it so long. And then you've got to win their heart so they want to do it. But there's an aspect of it where there's a real responsibility. Does the responsibility end at spiritual? There's an aspect of where we should invest more than just an hour a week in a discipleship training class. It should be that we teach them. We, we help them grow. We help them learn. We help to develop them. Uh, I saw a statistic last night that says something to the effect of 93% of homes where the father is saved, the rest of the family will end up trusting in Christ. If the child is saved, it's like 3.5% of the home, the rest of the home will get saved. It's a tremendous statistic. But when you look at it, you go, but we want to take that child and make him the next dad of that home. And we want to take that teenager and make them the next dad of that home. It may take a generation to see the 93% in that house. But I'm not giving up on that house because I look at here. But at the same time, I'm not going to give up here because this one's easier. We have to recognize there is a responsibility regardless of the age of the individuals that we are reaching. Now, the, the last part of that question is how does that application of spiritual parenthood acting like a physical parent, match now when you get to actual combining the two so that you become the spiritual parent and physical parent of a child. How do those two intersect? What becomes your responsibilities then? Yes, sir? Go ahead. Leading by good example. Yep. What else? Brother Jared used a term a minute ago, intentional. Who should be the people you are most responsible for discipling? Who? Your family. 
your family. Without a doubt, the people you should be the most responsible for discipling is your family. Now, at what age do you get to stop discipling them? Now, let's just be honest. In a utopian world, wouldn't it be great if there were some dads who would sit down with their adult son and say, you know what, look, I know I haven't been perfect. I haven't been a perfect dad. But I want now, even though you're 30, 40 years old, I want us to grow together spiritually. And wouldn't it be, just being honest, look, wouldn't it be easier to meet with your child once a week for an hour to spend some time together intentionally discipling compared to meeting with somebody who you barely know? Might depend on your relationship with your dad. But the truth is, there's an aspect of it that we can't neglect. As a physical parent, it is my responsibility. It is not Harvest Baptist Churches. It is not Sunday school teachers. It is not school teachers. It is my responsibility. There is a statistic out there that says something to the effect of young people who go to public school or Christian school, about 20% of them stay involved in church after they get out of the home. The same studies, and I'm sure they're biased studies, but anyway, uh, the same study will say somewhere in the range of 95 to 98% of young people who are homeschooled will stay in church after they get out of the home. Now, I will tell you this. I believe with everything in me, it has nothing to do with homeschooling. And I homeschool. I don't believe it has anything to do with homeschooling. I believe it has to do with the fact that when you homeschool, you have absolutely no choice but to be involved in what your kid's learning. I believe that if you took in that 20% and you looked, or, or the greater whole of the 100% of those who go to Christian school, public school, and you look in those about the percentage of parents that are actively involved in what their kid's learning, I bet 98 to 95% of them stay in church. Because I grew up in public school, I graduated from public school, I went all 13 years of my education, but my parents were involved in what I was learning. And the difference is when mom and dad are intentional that what my child learns is my responsibility, and I want to make sure my child's learning about the Lord. Are there advantages to different education systems? Yeah, that's not my point. My point is this, when mom and dad are involved, that's what needs to happen. Nowhere, mom and dad, should we travail more than investing in discipling our own children. Look at six. Think of someone that you know that truly needs a spiritual parent. What are some practical ways you can begin to parent them? In light of that, don't be naive. Your child might need a spiritual parent. I, the biggest hindrance to my children is me. And where I struggle 
they will struggle. And when I see them act like me, man, I hate that. Because they always act the things that I do wrong. They never follow the things you do right, you know? But that's not true either. But it makes it feel that way sometimes. But honestly, in your home, your kids might need a spiritual parent. But there are folks in our church, regardless of age, that need a spiritual parent. It is our responsibility to become trainers, not teachers. And say, look, let's walk through this together. Let's, let's run that mile together. Let me help you with this. And when we do, then as Paul did, it takes some travail, it takes some work. But the fruit of that is exactly what God has called us to do. You've heard the message. Now I hope you'll respond to it. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, now's the time to bow your head and ask Him to save you. In John 6:37, Jesus tells us that He will not cast out anyone who calls upon Him. I hope that you will call on Him today. If you need help spiritually, we'd love to be of service to you. Leave us a message, would you? At hbcga.org or 770-974-9091. Our service times are 1045 on Sunday morning, 930 for Sunday school, 5 o'clock for the evening service, and then 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Our services are warm and welcoming, and you will feel right at home. Come and visit us here at Harvest, and call on us if you need us. God bless you.